Good morning, New Life Church. How are you? Aren't you glad you're here, not at the lake? Aren't you glad? I'm glad you're here. I got my friend Scott here and his family. They got to sit in the front row beside the pastor all the way from Steinbach this morning. So I'm excited to, to, to have my best friend up here uh, celebrating my birthday with me. Thank you. So, uh, shameless plug, yesterday was my birthday. So, but I'm willing to accept gifts even though it's, uh, it's past. We're going to spend time together, watch the game this afternoon. Um, so I decided to wear white this morning, okay? It's the only white t-shirt I own. Thank you. <laughs> Do you wish I had a tie? <laughs> I've been counting how many times people have said to me this morning, that looks nice, you should wear a tie. So that's, I think I'm up to my toes now. Anyway, but... Um, Wow, okay. How did you ever think of that idea? That's what I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Thank you. I haven't even done anything yet, but thank you. Um, yeah, so we're going to celebrate the, the whiteout here later. I'll watch the game, but I'm, I'm wearing it for more than that. It's, uh, there, there's a greater whiteout that we're celebrating this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about there, there's an ancient story, one of the oldest recorded stories we have, uh, and it's so old that we're not really sure to what degree it's legend mixed with, with history, but it tells of a Greek queen by the name of Helen, who uh, was kidnapped by the people of the city of Troy, the Trojans, and she was taken back to the city of Troy where she was held captive. So the Greeks, they mustered all the strength that they had, and they took their army, and they sailed across the sea, and they came against the city of Troy. And the story records that for 10 years, they besieged the city uh, to no result. Uh, a 10-year siege that was absolutely fruitless. The city of Troy was so strong, so impenetrable, they just couldn't do anything. And so they devised this idea this scheme, maybe you've heard the story. They built this big wooden horse. And it was a hollow horse. And they put some of their soldiers inside the horse and then they left that horse outside the gate of the city of Troy and the rest of the Greek soldiers pretended to go back home. And they left a little note on the horse saying, we, we did our best and you win, we're out of here. And so the rest of the soldiers got in their ships and they sailed around the bend where they couldn't be seen. And the city, the people of Troy saw this horse sitting out there and the army had gone and they thought, we won, this is great. And they've left this gift. And so they opened the gates and they brought the horse into the city. Have you heard this story? They brought that horse into that bastion of strength. And under the cover of darkness, those soldiers inside that horse um, opened the door, they got out, they opened the city gate that night from the inside. 
And the Greek, soul, the Greek army was waiting around the bend and they all came into the city and defeated the city of Troy. And that's where we get the term, the Trojan horse. Uh, the Trojan horse, that, that, that term has come to mean any trick or any strategy that, that causes a target to actually invite, to allow a foe into their bastion of strength. And so maybe some of you have invited a, a, a virus onto your computer. Has anyone ever done that? Something that seemed different and, and it was a Trojan horse virus and it got onto your computer and it made a mess of things. This morning, um, I want to look at one of the most common Trojan horses that we can allow into our lives as Christians uh, that robs us of the victory that we experience as those who follow Jesus Christ. This series uh, I've called Victorious Knowing Who I Am in Christ. We're, we're, we're talking about what it looks like to live a victorious life in the face of life's trials and troubles. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, Jesus promised his disciples, John chapter 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble. You're gonna face challenges and battles in life But Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. You're going to face stuff in life, but don't worry. Everything you're going to face, everything the world's going to throw at you, I have already overcome on your behalf. And so the big point last week was this. Victory is not achieved by us. It is received through faith in Jesus. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has secured for you Victory over anything that life can throw at you. Like that city of Troy, you are behind in Christ unconquerable, impenetrable walls. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, be strong in the Lord. We're going to read these verses here in a minute. He begins by saying, be strong in the Lord. Jesus has secured your victory over whatever can come against you. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, put on the full armor of God so that you can take the stand against the devil's schemes. In other words, you've got victory in Christ, but you still need to put on these pieces that God has given you because you do have an enemy that comes against you, even now, that schemes against you, that uses deception and trickery to overcome you and to rob you of the joy and the freedom and all the benefits of victory that Jesus has secured for you. Satan schemes against you. And so last week, we, we saw that, the, uh, that no enemy we have can overcome us. Like those walls, we cannot be overpowered All we can do as Christians is to allow the enemy within the walls. Satan has Trojan horses um, that he uses in our our heart and in our mind to um, make us miserable and ineffective in life. And so over these weeks, we're talking about what some of those schemes are and what are the pieces of armor that God has given us to stand against that and to stand and experience the victory that Jesus has secured for us in all the circumstances of life. 
So Paul's going to say here that God has equipped you. God has equipped you with everything you need to stay in victory. So let's read this together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, okay, when those trials, when those troubles come, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this morning, um, last week we took a look at the belt of truth a little bit. This morning we want to take a look at the breastplate of righteousness. What is this piece of armor that God has given us? And I essentially um, want to, to, to ask and seek an answer to three questions. What is the righteousness that Paul is talking about? How is that righteousness like a breastplate for us? And then thirdly, how do we put that on? Because he says, put on the armor of God. So those are the three questions we're going to look at. The breastplate, you know what a breastplate is, right? The, the word here that Paul uses is the word thoraka. It's a Greek word, okay? Thoraka is a breastplate. It comes from the word thorax. Now thorax is what part of your body? It's the part of your body from your neck down to your waist. You got a lot of important bits in that part of your body, don't you? Some important, all your vital, most of your vital organs are right there. I mean, there, there's some parts of your body that you can make do without. I, I had a friend growing up, Chris Cook. He was in some of those war amp commercials. He skied. He didn't have any arms or legs. Uh, and, and he was, he was our, uh, our, our soccer goalie, believe it or not. It was quite a sight. And no arms or legs, and somehow I still couldn't score on him. I just... Um, this is the part of the body that, that has all the vital organs in it. So the breastplate is very important, right? If you see on the news there, the police officers, they've got their bulletproof vest. You've got those war correspondents. They're all wearing their breastplate to protect those parts of them. So uh, what is righteousness? That first question, what is righteousness? Now, the, the Hebrew word sadak, from which we get righteousness, is the same word from which we get good, goodness, which we get just, to be just. Essentially, it's the idea of conforming to a standard. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's, it's about being right. It's the idea of conforming to a standard, meeting a moral mark. And so, uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, after uh, Moses had recapped all of the law that God had given to his people, he sums that all up by saying this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25. He says, uh, if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. That will be our 
righteousness, if we meet the mark that God has set for us, his standard. I um, want to show you that in, in the Bible there are three different types of righteousness, and this is important that we understand this. If we don't understand what sort of righteousness Paul is talking about, we're going to get this all wrong. There are three different types of righteousness that we find in, in the scriptures. The first one we call comparative righteousness. Okay. This is um, our position in relationship to a, be- to, to a person. Like Scott's a good guy, I'm a little bit better. <laughs> Just being, I, his wife would even agree, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's your relationship, your, your position in relationship to another person, better than. And so you have King Saul back in 1 Samuel 24. He says to David, who's not yet king, he says, you are more righteous than I am, for you have treated me well and I have treated you badly. You are more righteous. That's comparative righteous. It's essentially, um, I'm measuring your goodness against the goodness of others. And I think this is what most people mean when they say, I'm a good person. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a good person? I hear that all the time. I'm a good person. And I think what they mean by that is, listen, I, I, I know a whole lot of other people around me, and as I compare myself to others, um, I think I, I stack up pretty well. I, I'm above average. I'm better than most, maybe. Um, I, you know, I'm faithful to my wife. Uh, I love my children. I don't drink too much very often. Um, I, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't crochet. <laughs> right? It's crocheters. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And I think that's, uh, that's comparative righteousness, how we are in relationship to other people. Okay? Now, we can be comparatively righteous without being completely righteous. We all agree with that, right? Because for, for all the people that you're better than, there's probably a few people that are better than you, that are more righteous than you. We can be comparatively righteous without being completely righteous. We can, um, we, we can uh, get closer to hitting the mark than others, but still fall short of the mark. And so that second type of righteousness that the scripture talks about is what we might call perfect righteousness. This is divine righteousness. This, this is God's perfect standard of what is good. To be, to, to be perfectly righteous isn't just to do some good, it is to be good. To be good. And so David, even though Saul looked at him and said, you're righteous, you're more righteous than me, this is what David says about himself and about um, all of mankind as well. We find these words in Psalm chapter 14, verses um, 2 and 3. David says, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, um, if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Yet all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what David is just acknowledging is, is There is nobody, including myself, that is perfectly righteous, that has met the mark. All have fallen short of that. And and, and this is 
what Paul says, he quotes these words actually in Romans chapter three and then he adds to that, Romans three verse 23, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Everyone has, even in doing their best, has, their arrow has not hit the target, has fallen short of God's righteousness, that which we ought to be, that which we are called to be. And I don't think there's anyone here who probably disputes that. And, 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 if, and if we feel pretty good about maybe how we are in relationship to other people, I wonder what, what, what you would feel if you, you were sitting here and we played on this screen a video of all the, of all the thoughts of all of your, of all of your words and all of your actions. The stuff you have thought, the stuff that you have said behind closed doors, the things you've done. If, if we just got to see it all, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do? If, if it was all there, I know what I'd do. I'd hand in my keys. I'd find Chairman Jim and I'd be like, here are the keys. It was nice knowing you. Right? Because we all recognize that we have fallen short of God's standard. None of us is perfectly righteous. But there is a third type of righteousness, and this is what we need to understand this morning. There's a third type of righteousness that we'll call imputed righteousness. You know what the word imputed means? Probably, you probably never use that word. Jim, you ever use that word with your colleagues at you know, the lunchroom at work? Imputed? Never? Never? What does it mean to impute? To impute is to, to, uh, to transfer a quality that belongs to one thing onto another thing that it's associated with, okay? Now, you, you, you maybe don't know the word, but you know the concept. You, you've heard of the term guilty by, you've heard that? Guilty by association? That, that's imputed guilt. Guilty by association, which, which it, it might be that my dad has done something bad. He is guilty of something. And because of my association with my father, even though it's not something that I have committed, I am guilty by association. People will treat me, maybe, like they would treat my father because of my association with him. That's guilt by association. You can probably think back to when you were a kid and, and, you, and, and you were in a group of kids. And then there, there was always that one bad kid. His name was probably Tommy. All bad kids' names are Tommy. I don't know. Except for the Tommies in our church. There's a few of them. Those kids are, those are great kids. But you know, would, 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 do something, uh, would do something they ought not to do and the whole group got in trouble for it. Right? Guilt by association. Is it possible to be righteous by association? You ever heard that term? I haven't. I mean, I always hear guilt by association. Is it possible to be righteous by association? I, the only place I've ever heard of that idea is actually in the Bible. It's the only place you're going to find this idea. Paul talks about it in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Look at these words. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though, we were, uh, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then here it is. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's talking about imputed righteousness. He's talking about a transfer of, of, of a quality that belonged to one onto another to which it was associated. Here we see that Jesus, um, Jesus knew no sin. Here was one who was perfectly righteous, the only one who was perfectly righteous. That's what it means when it says that he had no sin. Perfectly righteous. And yet on the cross he died for sin. He died for our sin so that in him we might receive what belonged to us. There was this transfer. Our guilt was placed on him and in turn we become, Paul says, the righteousness of God. Our sins are not held against us by God. We are free from guilt and we receive that which belongs to Jesus Christ, his righteousness. And how do we do that? How do, how do we receive that forgiveness? How do we become the righteousness of God? Well, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. He says, but now apart from the law, that is all those good works that God commanded us to do, now apart from all the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given, is imputed through faith in Jesus Christ to who? To all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And though he says here again, we become, we receive the righteousness of God when we put our trust in Jesus and believe in him. Not by our own works, Paul will go on to say. Um, in other, when we realize we don't have any righteousness of our own, then we are ready to receive God's righteousness then we are ready to receive God's righteousness that comes only by faith in Christ. And so you have this verse that at the end of the service I'm gonna invite you to memorize. It's 1 John 1, 9. Some of you will know it. It's one of the very first Bible verses I memorized. Do you know it, 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all righteousness. He will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us of all righteousness. Now, does that seem a little redundant? He will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us of all righteousness. Isn't that the same thing? Okay, thank you, because that's a bit of a mistake. <laughs> You're all going to hell. See ya. There's no hope for you. <laughs> thank you. So where was I? 
If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we go. Okay. Thank you. So, when, when, when we repent and put our trust in Jesus, we're, we're promised two things. A, he forgives our sins. Okay? He forgives our, our, our guilt. And, and, and secondly, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He forgives our shame. He's talking about guilt and shame because those two things are related, but they're not exactly the same. What is guilt? Guilt is a fact. You break a law, you fall short of something, you're guilty. That's a fact, okay? What is shame? Shame are these feelings, these feelings of not being good enough, these feelings of being dirty, these feelings of being worthless, and unwanted, okay? So what Paul is saying is when we confess our sins, Jesus, does, God does two things. He forgives our guilt and he cleanses us of all of our shame. That's the breastplate of righteousness. It's not comparative righteousness. It's not our works, it's our goodness. It's the righteousness of God that is given to us who believe in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. That's this breastplate which we are given by God um, to, to stand against the schemes of the devil because the devil schemes against you. And one of his, I guess one of the most common Trojan horses that we can open the gate to in our life as Christians to allow to come in um, are, is, is the scheme of um, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Satan wants us to feel guilty and shameful. Now I should say here, guilt, um, there's two different types of guilt, right? There's a sort of guilt that leads to conviction of our sin, and then there's a sort of guilt that leads to condemnation. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin in order to lead us to repentance so that we might be free of the guilt. That's the work of God. The work of our enemies, that Satan, is very different. Okay? It, it, it is the guilt that says you can't be forgiven. That's condemnation. That's not conviction. He wants us to feel condemned by our guilt to hang on to our guilt and to hang on to our shame. In fact, the name Satan, it's not an actual name. Um, it, it's, it's a word. Like it's just like Rusty. I guess Rusty's not an actual name either. But um, the word Satan literally means accuser. Who is Satan? He is an accuser. In fact, this is what we find in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10. It says this, about Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. What is Satan doing? He is accusing us before God. He's saying, um, look at them. Look who they are. 
Look at what they done. Look at what he did again. Remember what he did before? He is accusing us before God. Now that doesn't work with God. God ain't gonna buy any of that. Because God has his son Jesus Christ, we're told, sitting at his right hand, who is interceding for us even now. And what is he showing, what is he showing God the Father? He's sitting there with his hands out like this. You know, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he still had these nail marks in his hand. Why? I think it's to be in a, a, a continual reminder at the throne of God that it has all been paid. When those accusations come, God the Father looks at, at, at the hands of Jesus and says, nope. That's been paid for. That debt's been canceled. I don't hold that against them at all. And yet Satan uh, accuses us before God, even though unsuccessfully, but he can be successful against us. Okay? He wants us to be self-condemned in our heart and in our mind. And that, that takes a few different forms, I think. He wants us to feel condemned by our guilt, the guilt of our, of our sin. To, to feel uh, that God wouldn't forgive that. God's gonna hold that against you. Right? God, God isn't going to forgive that again. Like it's been 612 times. God isn't going to forgive that again. Ooh, that, that, that's maybe too big. I don't know that God would forgive that. You, you, you've, I, I hear people from time to time. I just heard it last week. Um, you know what keeps a lot of people coming in these doors? because I hear it from people who finally work up the courage to, they're scared that the roof is going to fall on their head. What a weird thing. The roof is going to fall on their head. Which is a way of saying, I don't think I'm good enough to belong there. I don't, if only they knew what I, what I had done, God won't forgive me. And guilt, so guilt causes us to hide. Um, that's way back at the beginning, Genesis chapter three, the very first sin. What do they do after the very first sin? God comes looking for them. Adam, and where's Adam? He's hiding behind the mic stand. As if you could hide from God, hey? Adam, where are you? And he comes to Adam. Why are you hiding? Well, I had done this thing. And that's what guilt causes us to do. It causes us to withdraw ourselves from, from God. I mean, even animals do this. My, my puppy pooped on the floor last night. So we gave it away. <laughs> Brought it to SPCA. I'm going to do that again. Puppy pooped on the floor. Cooper? Normally Cooper comes running, <laughs> telling, Cooper, where did I find Cooper? <laughs> He's in the back corner of his kennel, in the corner of the, and I look down at Cooper, you pooped on the floor, <laughs> clean it up. <laughs> 
What is it? Even, even animals, they feel guilty. And, and, when you, and when you feel guilt, what do you do? You hide. It's true of all of us. We hide from God. We hide from church. We hide from community. We hide from other Christians because of the burden of guilt. Satan wants to um, cause us to feel self-condemned by the guilt that God has already forgiven, that God does not hold against us. He uses guilt against us. Satan uh, wants us to um, be condemned by our shame. I think a lot of people, they, they feel this. And I, I think some of you here, you, you know what I'm talking about here. I know God has forgiven me because he made a promise. And so he kind of has to. He's kind of contractually obligated to forgive me. But I bet he's looking down at me right now and just shaking his head. Going, oh my goodness. That's just, he's disappointed. He's, he's disgusted, maybe. Or maybe, maybe he's just, he'll forgive me, but um, he's, 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 he's still going to let me know in some way how, how, how short I have fallen. Maybe he'll withhold himself from me. And, and, and this always comes up in us, this, this accusation within us, often when we're facing a difficult thing. Because when something difficult happens in our life, What's the question we ask? I wonder if God is, huh? Watching? I wonder if God is punishing me, right? I I remember um, hearing this story, and I don't know if it's a true story, and I've maybe shared it before, of um, a woman who was having visions of Jesus, apparently, and, and her priest had heard about this, and he thought, well, that's strange. And so he went, and he talked with her about it, and he was kind of skeptical. So he said to the woman, he said, listen, the next time Jesus comes to visit you, I want you to ask Jesus a question. Ask him, what was the last sin I confessed in confessional? You ask him that. She said, okay. So a while later, he had heard that she had been getting more visions of, of Jesus, and so she, he had went back to her and said, so did you ask him the question? And, and she said, yeah, you know, I asked him what, what the last sin was that you had confessed. And what did he say? She said, Jesus said, I don't remember. I don't remember. I distinctly remember forgetting that. Right? Psalm 103 says, uh, God says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I have removed your sin from you, to be remembered no more. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. He cleanses us of all of our shame and holds none of that against us. Uh, some of us deal with that shame, I think. And, and, we, and what that can do is we, 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 that causes us to sideline ourselves. Um, go say, God's not going to use me. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of damaged goods. And so we kind of put ourselves on, on the shelf because we're 
ashamed of ourselves. When God is not ashamed, he has cleansed us from all that shame. As Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter one, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be washed white as snow. But Satan wants us to hang on to the shame of of that forgiven sin. He wants us to think maybe God will forsake us. But Jesus, he didn't just bear our guilt. He also bore our shame, which is why it says in, in, in Hebrews that when he went to the cross, he, he, he went to the cross scorning our shame. See, he didn't just, he didn't just die for, for our guilt. It wasn't just his death. When he, when he went to the cross, he suffered lots of mocking and jeering and all of this shame that was associated with his death that he bore. And the Bible says that he scorned the shame of the cross as he bore it for us. God, we need to know that God didn't have to forgive. God delights to forgive. God delights to forgive. It was his idea. Did you know that? Did you know it was his idea? No, 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 nobody climbed a mountain to try to find God to ask for grace and mercy all these things. We were dead in our sins going about our business but God demonstrated his love for this. While we were sinners he came down and he died for us. Why? Because he wanted to forgive. He wanted to cleanse us. He wanted us to be free of guilt and shame. He wanted to showcase his grace. I think that's why in the gospel, in all the gospels, I think, you have um, the record where Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper um, says uh, that uh, they would deny him. She says, before this night is over, um, you're, you're all gonna abandon me. And, P- and Peter says, never, Lord, never am I gonna leave you. I'll die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, even before the, the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows, you have denied me three times. And you know how the story goes. He denies Jesus once. He denies Jesus a second time. And he denies Jesus a third time. And then he hears the rooster crow. And when he hears that rooster crow, the Bible tells us that he was overcome with guilt and with grief. And Luke says he went into the alley and wept bitterly. He had failed miserably. Can you imagine how he would have felt? Can you imagine the guilt and the shame? And so he was excited when Jesus rose from the dead and, and, and they were together again. And, 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 um, but, but I think he must, have, he must have carried this weight of guilt and shame that, that, that was there with him, that he had denied his Lord three times. And so in the Gospel of John, we're told at the end, Jesus comes to Peter and he singles him out and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. A second time he says, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you, Lord. You know that I do. Okay, just check in. Just feed my sheep. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? And at this point we're told he's actually starting to get a little upset. Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Okay, okay, feed my sheep. Now, I don't think Peter knew at the time what he was doing, but you know what Jesus was doing? <laughs> he, 
He, he was taking that, that burden of guilt and that shame off of Peter's shoulders. He was giving him an opportunity to be completely restored because he didn't want him to carry that around with him. He wanted to be free. He wanted him to be free of that. So Jesus restores him because Jesus wants to be fr- us to be free of guilt and of shame. That's why he died for us. So everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ has received the breastplate of righteousness. That is God's righteousness. Perfect righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ. But just because you have it doesn't mean you wear it, right? That's that's why Paul had to say, put it on. It doesn't do you any good over in the corner. Against the arrows of the enemy, you actually have to wear it. So what does it look like to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Let me just suggest three things quickly as we come to an end. Um, How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Firstly, um, we have to confess it, and by it I mean our sin. Not because God hasn't forgiven all of our sin, past, present, future, when we put our faith in Jesus, because he has. But the Bible still, still invites us, asks us to confess our sin to God and to one another, to those that we have wronged. Why? Why keep short accounts with our sin? Because it robs Satan of the oxygen that he needs to fuel our guilt and our shame. Right? We, we can take all that oxygen away from that guilt and that shame if we just keep short accounts with our sin. If we confess um, Confess to God if there's anything, any way which we have not been loving to him or towards one another. Um, and if we make right uh, whatever we have wronged. So we need to confess our sin. I think that's important. Because then we, we can claim the forgiveness. We need to claim God's promises. When these, when these thoughts and these feelings of the, these accusations of guilt and shame come, because I'm sure they do in your life. Some of you are plagued by this. And others, maybe you're not plagued by this, but I experienced this. I think we all at times have these accusations, this self-condemnation of guilt and shame. And we need to claim the promises of God, that they are greater than our own feelings and our own thoughts. Right? We need to claim who we are in Jesus Christ. We need to speak the truth to ourselves that I am not forgiven. Or sorry, there I go again. I am not forsaken. I am forgiven. I am not rejected. I am righteous in Jesus Christ. Back in Revelation chapter 12, when it said that Satan accuses um, us before God day and night, it says he has been hurled down, for they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. They triumphed over the accusations of Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, which I think means they claimed the promises of God, the righteousness of the God that was won for them through the blood of Jesus Christ. They hung on to that. That was the word of their testimony by which they overcame the accusations against them. So we need to claim it. Um, and, and one way you can do that is just by memorizing a verse like 1 John 1, 9. You know, memorize that and use that when you need that. And then thirdly, lastly, 
um, we need to celebrate the righteousness that has been given us uh, through Christ. Um, a couple days ago, we had our life group barbecue, and it, it was great. We, we, we ended it by taking communion together. It was special because we all had an opportunity to share the difference that the cross made for us, the, the blood of Christ, the difference it actually makes in our life. And so most people had an opportunity and, and to share what it was um, that that meant what, uh, to them. And, and, and we celebrated that. We thank God for all of that. In fact, Paul calls the Lord's Supper the table of thanksgiving. The table of thanksgiving. When, when we remember his, his, his blood shed for us and his body broken for us, we ought to give thanks for what he has done for us. The purpose is not to showcase how awful we are. It's to showcase how awesome God is. How awesome his grace is and his mercy and his forgiveness, which is total, which is eternal. We need to regularly thank and praise God for his forgiveness, for his gift of Christ's righteousness. We need to do that. We need to celebrate that to ward off the spirit of guilt, the spirit of shame. Um, And so, as, as we bring this to a close here, uh, this is what I invite you to do this week, okay? I invite you to ask yourself that question. Is there any sin that you need to confess? Is there any way which you have not been loving of God or loving of one another that you need to confess and make right? And if there's anything, then confess that. If there's anything you need to make right, make it right. Take from the enemy the oxygen of guilt and shame. Memorize a verse like 1 John 1, 9. Claim the promises of God. And then just this week, um, I encourage you every day this week in your prayer, at some point in your day, thank God for his righteousness. Thank God for his total and complete forgiveness of you, for his cleansing. Celebrate that. Thank that. Thank God for that um, every day this week. We will live victoriously when we know who we are in Christ. When we know that we are forgiven, we're cleansed, and we can stand against the guilt and the shame that would rob us of the joy and freedom that Jesus has secured for us. May we put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we're just gonna close um, with some prayer together. I I want you just to bow your head and to close your eyes, and I wanna lead you through a, a time of prayer before I close. Why don't you just ask God right now to um, just can say, God, search my heart, and if there's any offensive way in me, if there's, any, if there's any sin in me, any way which I've not been loving towards you or another, would you show that to me? Ask him that right now. the Lord brings anything to your mind, then just uh, confess that. Say to God, God, I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I receive your forgiveness. And I want you to thank God. Just... Thank him um, 
that through his son Jesus, he's done it all for you. Thank him for the total forgiveness that is yours through his son Jesus. Go ahead and thank him. Lord Jesus, we do thank you and we do praise you. We celebrate the fact that you loved us so much that you came down and though you had no sin of your own, you went to the cross willingly and on that cross you paid our debt and you bore our sin and you bore our guilt and you bore our shame for us so that we could be completely forgiven and that we could be completely cleansed of all our unrighteousness. We thank you, God, that you have done it all for us and that we receive that by by faith, by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Jesus Christ for our forgiveness, for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you just give that to us freely because you are a God of grace and mercy and delight to do that. We love you, God, um, and we just pray that you would enable us as your people who are clean in your sight. You would enable us, Father, as we go from here into our week, whatever the world would throw at us, whatever Satan would speak to us, whatever lies our minds and our hearts would tell us, Lord, may, may you just give us the ability to put on that breastplate of righteousness. Yeah. To know that we are forgiven, that we are clean, that we are free. In Jesus' name, amen.